Again, one of those mornings. There we go. <laughs> Excuse me. So, uh, Jesus seems to see Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree, and apparently that's a big deal. Uh, like is typical with the book of John, as he is telling the story of Jesus' life, uh, I find myself reading it and thinking, there's something I'm supposed to get, and I don't get it. It's like the handful of times my, my wife, Katie, or my friend Carl have dragged me to like a fine art museum, and I'm just sitting there going, neat. Uh, I, huh, tell me about this because I'm just so lost. <clears throat> and that's, that's because John writes in a very different way. He's not, di- he, he's not just telling a story. He's uh, making connections with words and ideas to all of Israel's deep past. <clears throat> and because we're not first century Jewish people, um, we tend to miss it. So he starts um, telling the story of Jesus with um, Jesus' birth, except he's John, so he can't just say, yeah, he was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. He starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and essentially all things were made through this Word. So, uh, and, and then he, he comes to that con- uh, conclusion that the Word became flesh, and tabernacled, became sacred space among us. It's like, okay, oh, it, this is, it, he was born in Bethlehem, and that's much easier. <clears throat> um, but what, what John is doing is, is saying that Jesus is, in some really hard to explain way, the, the creative power of God. He is God. He's the word that is spoken to create the cosmos. So really big picture. And then that, that, that the wisdom of God, as, as Jewish writers would say, which is his creative power, God himself, God's very word, all of this swirling together takes on flesh. He is incarnate. He, he's walking around in sandals and he has fingers and toes and eyes and a nose and so on and so forth. So John likes to vacillate between those big cosmic ideas of who God is and then frame those ideas in terms of a guy walking around who has friends and eats and drinks and spends time with people. So in this particular reading, uh, he is gathering disciples. Uh, he has been baptized by John the Baptizer, which kind of marks his, the beginning of his public ministry. It identifies in, uh, in some way that, that John is, in, again, in some way Jesus' own rabbi, because every rabbi has to have a rabbi, and you'd have to be able to trace that back to Moses. That's kind of how that worked. And so then, if every rabbi has a rabbi, every rabbi has disciples, students. So he's going to gather them. And right before this reading, when he has that whole back and forth with Philip and Nathaniel, uh, he calls Peter, except that's not Peter's name. Peter's name is Shimon or Simon, 
and he also has another name, uh, Kephas. And when he meets Peter, he says, Ah, you will be called Peter. Now, how does he know that? <laughs> um, I mean, the obvious answer is that he's Jesus. Uh, but it's important to know that Jesus isn't depicted as like just this, this floating presence of God, kind of like almost like gaseously kind of wafting around or something like that. He's a guy. He has thoughts and feelings and emotions and all of that. But he also has this eerie insight into what's going on around him. So while Jesus isn't a wizard of some kind, he knows people deeply, better than they know themselves. And he correctly identifies Peter as the one who will become known as Peter later on in that story, who will become the first leader of the apostles after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, and who, again, curiously, about halfway through the book of Acts, vanishes from the story. Just interesting to me. So uh, he's in uh, the region of Bethsaida, or uh, really Galilee. Uh, Galilee is kind of its own thing. It's under a different uh, rulership from like, Jerusalem or Judea, and that causes some interesting problems that we're not going to get into. But uh, it, it's, it, they, it, there's a different culture there. Uh, there's a lot of like smaller towns, small cities. It's maybe not quite as populated as, as like the area around Jerusalem. And so uh, he, uh, he encounters Philip, and Philip is called as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Philip is interesting because that's a Greek name. It's not a Hebrew name. And so then Philip after encountering Jesus, becomes effectively a missionary. Like, this, this, this is, I think, the guy. Like, the one that we've been waiting for for countless generations. This is God doing what He's promised He was going to do for a very long time. You can hear that even in, in, from the days of Moses. And He's standing in front of me. I've got to tell somebody. And, and I mean, that's, that's a little, maybe small picture of the Christian life. Like, like if, if God has been gracious enough to reveal himself to us, why would we keep that a secret? And why would we not use most any means we could to communicate that, that there is something special going on here? So Philip runs to Nathaniel and, and he says, Nathaniel, we, I, I, he's here, finally. Uh, he, um, the, the, the one that, that, that is talked about in the books of Moses, the one that the prophets had said is coming, you know, really, Messiah, he's here. His, his name, he, it's, it's Yeshua, son of Joseph. Now, I mean, it, it's, it's not that big of an area. Um, Hard to say if, if Philip expected Nathaniel to know who that is. We just don't know. But it, it takes us from a very big, like, 
you know, culmination of history. This is probably, this is, I mean, truly, whether you're a Christian or not, this is like the biggest moment or the biggest period of time in human history because it has been the most influential moment in human history. Uh, it is a big moment. And then the scope comes really, really small. It becomes really small. It's Jesus, son of Joseph. Like, that's just a name. Like, I'm Eric, son of Brad. Um, it's, it's that guy. And then he says, yeah, it, Jesus, is, this, Joseph is his father. Now, we get later in the story, and apparently there are some rumors that Joseph is not the father. <laughs> ding, 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 correct. Um, but that's a whole other thing. And he says, yeah, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, I love it, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I love it. Um, he's not wrong. <laughs> we have no record, uh, written or material, of Nazareth being an established town or city from before the first century. We do have material uh, evidence that it, it started getting populated around the first century. So it makes sense that he would say, is anything going to, I mean, come on, it's Nazareth. Is anything good going to come from that? Like, they don't even have a Walmart kind of thing. They don't even have a library. Can they even read over there? It's, it's that kind of feeling. Like, I, uh, when I was born, I lived in a, um, I'm, I'm told, I, I don't really remember, we lived in a small uh, city in kind of the L.A. area called Pomona. And don't go there. It's terrible. And... If you would say, can anything good come from Pomona, my response would be, well, except from me, no. <laughs> it, I mean, and just picture like that small town that has like nothing. It doesn't even have small town charm. And so Nathaniel scoffs, he says, dude, you want to say that, that the one we've been waiting for for generations came from Nazareth? It doesn't even make sense. So Philip just says, come and see. Meet him. Because there's this very interesting um, phenomenon, shall we say, that when people meet and interact with Jesus, they are not the same afterward. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are on team Jesus. A whole bunch of people met him and then tried to kill him. Because when you meet somebody... Like that, if there, sometimes that can call out the darkest parts of us. But that's all for another time. So here's where John he has gone from very small, like Jesus, son of Joseph. He's from Nazareth. It's like I don't know. I saw that on his driver's license or something like that. It, it's very small. It's just small town, region of Galilee. This is just everyday events. And Jesus is about to go really deep. And this is why John continues to be a mystery. Because <clears throat> he meets Nathaniel. And what does he say? He says, ah, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, for us, 
that seems like, like well, for us, we're, init- we're immediately going to jump to, well, how would you even know that except, I guess, you're Jesus? It's not exactly what Jesus is doing here. Because there was an Israelite who had a reputation, shall we say, of being immensely deceitful. Like, that's how his story plays out for the, I don't know, not entirety, but for a huge portion of his life. His name was Jacob, whom God will later rename Israel. There's, there's something going on there. Jesus is tapping into something about Nathaniel, saying, well, he, he's reading his heart. He recognizes that he's, he's a good guy. He's one of the right guys that you would want within your inner circle. But he's doing more than that. He's connecting it to the history and the story of their people. Whereas Israel, the original, was it just a crook for most of his life until all of the, the ripping people off and deceiving people came up to bite him very hard. And he learned some hard lessons and it changed him for the better. And now we've got one of our own Who's not like that? Jesus, as he's gathering the 12 disciples, the 12 sons of Israel, yeah, that Israel, he's, re, he's, retelling, he's retelling their story. And this has a lot of applications. We're not going to get like, deep into it, uh, this in the moment. Um, I'm, I'm really really captivated by the idea of the hard parts of my own story being remade in Jesus. Um, the, the parts of my story that I would rather just not talk about or think about, the parts of my story that um, I like to pretend don't exist and were 100% my fault. <laughs> There's something going on there. So Nathaniel um, then responds with a very obvious question. He's like, how do, you, how do you even know me? And then Jesus says, well, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. And something about that triggers in Nathaniel just this, this he, like his eyes are opened and he sees, oh yeah, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. And he correctly identifies him, not as just like the chosen one, but as the rightful king of Israel. He is right here, right in front of me. Why does that trigger that response? We don't actually know. Um, fig trees do have a, a lot of significance. Like in the writings of the prophets, they tend to um, be used as a metaphor for Israel. So, um, for example, if Israel is dried up and it is not living out as God had intended, uh, the, it's like a fig tree that bears no fruit, um, as well as the opposite. God desires 
the fig tree to bloom and grow figs. And, and this becomes a symbol for the restoration of Israel. There's, again, John, this is why everybody is confused by you. <laughs> There's a lot here. And so, Nathaniel confesses, wow, you, you're the Messiah, the rightful king of, of our people. You're, you're the son of God. And Jesus then kind of pushes back. He says, oh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think he's being rude. I think he's just saying, well, it's interesting that you now uh, have your eyes open. You believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree, whether that's some sort of weird prophetic vision or Jesus has good eyesight and Nathaniel was way over there. We have no idea. Um, but then Jesus says, you are going to see many greater... Excuse. Again, it's one of those mornings. Um, Jesus says, you're going to see much greater things than this. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man. We're not going to go there. That's a whole thing. And he says, you will see um, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why would he say that? Well, so in the story of Jacob, who is later renamed Israel... One of the moments where he is getting, shall we say, his comeuppance. He is, uh, he's not in a good place. And, and it's basically entirely his fault. And he's sleeping outside and he puts a rock under his head, which, ow. And God grants him a vision. If you've ever heard of the term Jacob's Ladder, this is where it comes from. It's Genesis, I think it's 28. And he sees visions of the angels ascending and descending. And he realizes that something is happening here. That he is chosen for something greater. And God reveals who he is, who he's going to be. And when Jacob wakes up, he names this place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Now, Jesus has already made one reference to Jacob in terms of Nathaniel, and now he makes another. And he, he, he comes to that moment of this is when Jacob names this location as the house of God. And if you've been carefully listening to John, which we haven't, we're just reading this section, John is very keen on explaining that Jesus is sacred space which is otherwise would be known as the house of God. Not a coincidence, even a little. And that sacred space, the very presence of God, is walking around in sandals. Again, this, this, is, why, this, is, uh, this is why John is so deep, so multi-layered. When I was back in like grad school doing academic things, this is why I spent a huge amount of my time writing and researching the book of Luke. That's a joke. Because, man, you read John, it's like... <laughs> but boy, he has a lot of important things to say about Jesus. Now, there's, some, there's a lot we can go, take from this. And I want to get intensely practical. And in order to do that, we have to notice that vacillating, that expanding and contracting nature 
of, of what we just saw Jesus doing. The Word became flesh, the Word that God speaks, the creative power of God, God Himself, who creates the cosmos, taking on flesh. So big, very, very mundane. Uh, the Word became flesh, very mundane, and became sacred space, tabernacle, dwelled in our midst. Mundane to really big. Uh, Jesus, now He's going around finding disciples, because of course you would. That's just everyday things, like by April 15th, we have to file our taxes, and, and I've got phone calls to make at some point this week. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just how it works. That's mundane, very, that's just life. And, and then Jesus has like these really interesting insights into people. He can, he can dive right into their hearts and know them better than they know themselves. That's, again, really, really big. Um, and he makes friends very quickly, like with Nathaniel. And then he calls out of Nathaniel something that runs very deep to, to his and, and the history of his people's, like, like their very deep past, but he's also reliving and, and re, uh, rewriting a story of failure into a story of victory. Now we're getting really big again. At the core, or one of the cores, of the way of Jesus, what we might call Christian spirituality, I, I don't love that word, but we're going to just go with it, is this weird sometimes confusing intersection of the biggest, most mysterious divine and the smallest mundane. Like last week, um, talking about the weirdness of what it means to be a human being, that we are integrated creatures. We have, in some weird way, like this this spiritual nature, but we don't exist outside of a body. That we are the only things that, that, that can kind of tap into and in some ways commune with, with God, with our Creator, the Divine. And then at the same time, we brush our teeth in the morning. I mean, we should anyway. We... <laughs> We wash our hair, we put on clothes, we go to work or school or whatever. Like we're, 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 it's very awkward to be a human being. It's like being in junior high. You're not an adult, you're not a child. Like, what's going on here? Um, and the direction I want to take uh, with this actually leads us to our reading from Paul, from his letter to the church in Corinth that we heard today. And this is a very awkward passage because it's, um, it's not clear why he's saying like, you know, all things are permissible and, and it's probably because he's uh, quoting somebody that he is then going to argue against. Uh, the food is made for the body, body made for food, which I kind of like. I'm, just, I'm a Robinson, we love to eat. Because food is awesome. Have you ever had it? It's great. Uh, and then he gets into like issues of sex and sexuality, which is always kind of that moment of, ah, I don't want to talk about this right now, at least me. Um, but first I'm going to address, there's, it's not really an elephant, but if you picked up on it, it's, it needs to be addressed. 
And then we're going to jump right back to why this applies to what John was doing as he's telling the story of Jesus in the way he was doing. So Paul does have this whole thing about prostitutes. And uh, kind of a, I, I, I think it's a, it's a more recent thing, and, it, and some of this could be generational. But when we hear, uh, <clears throat> when we hear the word prostitute, we, we might, not all of us, but we might think uh, immediately of somebody who, um, who, who uh, who's experienced a lot of tragedy, who has turned to a, a kind of work that um, you really don't ever, I mean, that's never your hopes and dreams. You go there because you feel like you don't have any other choice. It might conjure up an image of somebody who is deeply addicted and struggling to something, uh, some, a, a way of life where somebody is just trying to get by from day to day. They just don't want to starve or their mind is just controlled by uh, the, the disease of addiction, and so they're trying to just get their fix. Like, somebody whom Jesus would t- command us to love. And so when we hear Paul saying, ew, prostitutes, or something like that, it might come across as, whoa, Paul, a little compassion here. That's not what he means. <laughs> because he's writing to the, the church in a city called Corinth, and Corinth is a, a colorful place in the Greek world. Uh, think of it like a combination of the money and weirdness and just everything goes, anything goes um, mindset of San Francisco and combine it then with sort of the spiritual weirdness of Portland, Oregon. If you've never been to Portland... It's not bad, but buckle up. It's just a weird thing. And and Corinth was known as the place of the worship of uh, the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and beauty and so on and so forth. And uh, worship of Aphrodite, the institutional worship of Aphrodite, involved these prostitutes. Paul is not saying what he is saying in a way of to like shame people who are struggling deeply. What he's doing is saying to his people, why would you worship or, or engage in these acts? Because when you use the word prostitute in the context of Corinth, this is an act of worship of the goddess Aphrodite. Why would you do that to yourselves? We serve the one true God. It has a, a fair bit less to do with the act itself and more of the meaning behind it. That said, uh, Paul doesn't start there. He talks about food. Uh, gluttony is one of my favorite sins. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. On the one hand, yeah, it's kind of (laughs) true. On the other hand, Christians have a tendency to jump to the sex part, and we don't want to be super strict about the gluttony part. But the reality is that neither are good for us. And if we are going to take 
this image of Jesus, divine incarnate, very seriously, that vacillating between the big cosmic and the small and mundane, one of the important things about the way of Jesus that we can conclude from that is that what we do with our bodies matters. We cannot, because we are humans, take a spiritual practice and pretend like it does not impact us in our bodies. And we cannot take a physical practice that is perhaps unhealthy and dangerous and assume it does not impact our spirit. Because we are humans and we are pulled into, we've been baptized into this story of Jesus, which is the big cosmic and the small mundane and physical all integrated, wrapped into one. And if we say Jesus redeemed us and saved us, we mean that he did that for my body as well as my soul, because I don't know how I could even divide that. And because of that, as Paul is saying, you are not, your, your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, you Humans are quite literally now baptized in Jesus, sacred space, redeemed space. And so what? So it matters what you do with that sacred space. What you consume, how you consume it, how much you consume it. Do not get yourselves tied up in the dehumanizing worship practices. That doesn't mean that Paul is saying it's a free-for-all for sex either. He's certainly not saying that. In fact, he's saying the opposite. That matters too. And rather than this being, and I'll end here, because I think I went way long, um, is not intended to be an act of shaming, but rather encouragement. What we do with our bodies, what we consume, how we consume it matters because you have been bought by the blood of Jesus himself. You have had and are having your story retold by the big cosmic divinity encased and experiencing the small and the mundane. That is your existence now. That is simply your identity. That is who you are. So of course it matters. What we do, what we consume, how we consume it. Because in our baptism marked by the Holy Spirit, God has made you His own temple, sacred space. Amen. Amen.